and welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is episode 248. Around the table with me today, we have Greg. Hi. <laughs> Andy. Hi. And Paul. Hi. <laughs> Greg and Paul are still going through puberty. <laughs> I'm just impersonating Greg. And this is Matt. We're mature over here. Matt's, Matt's your silent producer. Matt, you didn't even... Oh, yeah, okay. No, the silent finally. producer. You know here what? You put name. in your time, Matt, and the day comes that you get behind the mic. Congratulations. I'm now speaking. That's very gravelly. Thank That's you. very gravelly. Matt actually has voice. a very good hosting voice. That's all right. Don't you think? I try to drop it a little bit. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm just trying to be encouraging. You know what? It's great. Glad that you're here, Matt. We appreciate you. Thanks for hosting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I heard it's somebody's going on, birthday buddy. soon. Paul has a birthday coming up. Whoa. Don't you? What? Do you have a birthday coming yeah, up? Yeah, I actually do. It's coming when? up in April 14th. Nope. May 32nd. No, you had the month right. <laughs> April. April 29th. April 14th, by the way. That's my wife's April 32nd? Birthday. Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so May 1st. Yeah. No. 40, Paul? It is. Is it? It is, actually. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know. You're old. Mm-hmm. Just going to break it to you. Yeah, almost midlife. Okay, here's no, something. No, that is midlife, isn't it? So Paul and I got what do they consider I'm midlife? past 80. Dude, I'm going past 80. I remember uh, my Lord father wills. getting over the hill cards of at forty. You what? My father got over the hill birthday cards at forty. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and there was there was uh, flamingos on the lawn. Really at forty? I thought that was a fifty thing. I, I think know. we would agree though that once you hit forty, you are technically old at that point. <laughs> wow, probably. Okay, here's something people need to know about Paul though, because Paul and I we were in a room together for the ETS conference. They put the teaching associates mm. in a room. Paul has socks that are basketball players. He has Sean Kemp basketball socks that his socks literally have a printout of Sean Kemp from the Seattle Supersonics. Yes, in the dunk contest. He's Larry Bird. Like 1993, (laughs) And if you pay attention, like you'll wear these with dress shoes. Totally. Like to work, you'll wear a nice outfit with dress shoes and your Larry Bird socks. Amen. So you, I mean, you're turning 40, but barely. Yeah. (laughs) No, totally. I have my, even when I've worn them to preach, for sure. You have? For sure. Really? Yeah. That's impressive. They give you comfort. That's a lot of... They are, they're they're the best socks. Well, they aren't the best socks. The best socks I have are these merino wool socks that are just soft and, oh, they're amazing. But the other two, for cotton socks, those basketball, the socks are the best. They're made by a company called Stance. So will your your mom be making spelt mm. butterhorns for your fortieth birthday? She made some spelt pasca this week for Easter, mm. which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As good as those butterhorns we had a couple weeks ago, they were delicious, Paul. Yeah, they were really good. But they, those were yeah. not spelt, were they? No, yours no. weren't. Because no, no, whenever no. I put the, put anything with spelt in it in my mouth, I have to spit it out because it's disgusting. You've really. never yeah. had no, spelt. You... you know what? I almost did once. Yeah, so you're a real pizza. you're a real expert on the matter. <laughs> you almost tasted something with spelt in it, and it was gross, Greg. Yeah, it was could... really gross. <laughs> Can I ask a question about the socks? Love it. Did they have a picture of him dunking? Yes, on the socks. Yes. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, that's some serious. Socks. I might be able to wear them tomorrow. I think they you just should. got washed. They they help with your sermons, I you, guess. Hey, you know how sometimes, like every time, we have a photo for our podcast. I think this time it should be a photo of Paul's socks. All right. All right. I don't know if we can make that happen, but I think we should try. Does anyone else have funny socks? No, I got or are you adults? Socks. got normal adult socks. Me too. Yeah. 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 We I went, actually inherited my socks, believe it or not. We went... I got a funny... What do you mean inheriting your socks? Well, I all my socks had holes in them. And everyone in my uh, family knew this. Yeah. And so when my grandfather passed away, I got his socks. Wow. That's really interesting. Matt. His, his, I know. His <laughs> socks were okay and yours were not. His socks were not holy. Wow. All right. Well, that story was less interesting than I thought it was. No, it, wasn't, it was not interesting. Paul, I cut you off for this That's guy. okay. I went shopping. I was a... I was a a best man in a wedding once, and I was in Vancouver. Uh, we were getting 
we had to get a rental car with the with the groom. So it was me, the other groomsman, and the groom. We all went out there. We were at Pacific Center looking at some things. The groom was getting some new shoes, and so uh, we, the other groomsman and I, went across the hall to this other store, which is this. I can't even remember the name of it, but there's this really Pacific Center Mall. I mean, it's full of these mm-hmm. uppity you know, really expensive kind of places. So we went in and we were looking at socks and I'm looking at, I'm like, man, these socks are like, you know, 35, 40 bucks a pair. And this guy I'm with, he's like, he's like, you know what? We need to, we need some nice socks for this wedding. So he's like, I'm going to buy you a pair of socks. I'm like, all right. And he's, so he's going to buy a pair too. So we went through all the pairs and got them and I got my pair. He got his and he goes to pay the bills like $140 for two pairs of socks. And I was like, I, was, I looked and I was thinking to myself, man, he's got expensive taste in socks. And then I talked to him later, and or I hear him talking to the groom later, and he's like, Paul's really got expensive taste in socks. <laughs> he bought $100 socks. And I said, what do you, I said, mine weren't 100 bucks. I said, mine were the $30 pair. Like, I, I tried to f- find the cheapest one that place sold. Yeah. And he goes, and he's like, what? And he looks, he's like, oh, man. <laughs> so it's totally himself who bought these these crazy expensive socks. I didn't even know was, socks could cost a hundred dollars, man. No, I know. That ain't Me neither. Right. I didn't know he could talk this long about socks. Yeah. I'm ready to move on. I'm good too. It's a good thing. All right, let's get into some questions. If you have more <laughs> questions, email extra at northview.org. We should thank people for the yes. proliferation of questions. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago we were low on questions, and now we've got a ton. So tons of Thank questions. You. Some listeners have sent in multiple questions. Mm. Keep doing it; it's good. So here's our first question for the day: it has to do with coloring and adult coloring books. Is coloring mandalas wrong? There's a number of things that need to be said about this. Like, do you mean That's a right. picture of Nelson Mandela? First of all, That's right. well, first of all, could we just take a moment to reflect on the fact that there are such a thing as adult coloring books, but more than that, they're crazy popular. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, I saw a, a printout of the top 10 Christian books that were sold in March of like the month we're in. Does it need to be Christian? That makes it even more Yeah, shameful. no, the top top 10 Christian books, oh, three man. of them, two of them were Joel Osteen, <laughs> three of them were adult coloring books. The state of, that's just, that is, I'm going to go and spend the, and, some time alone with the Lord today. Yeah. Just praying well, and the other that. one was Jesus Calling. Yeah. Which is always, you know, none of our favorites. Well, that's the depth so, uh, that we go, I guess. Okay, so here's the thing about adult coloring books is I don't actually think there's anything really wrong with them. Like, I don't I don't see any any issue with someone wanting to color if they're an adult. I, I see it as no less... Wait a minute. Are we jumping into the question here? Are we not? Well, I... I what do you want to say? Okay, let's... Fine, let's backtrack just back, and let you do whatever you want. Can back up for yeah. a moment? Well, I just thought that we should mention the fact that we're talking about... Are we talking about Mandela? That's right. Okay, so when we or... were walking down from... <laughs> when we were walking down from the office, down the stairway... I was like, hey, did you guys see the questions about the Mandelas? And Andy said, Greg, it's pronounced Mandala. Well, first of all, I was trying to think of, hmm, I don't remember reading anything about Mandela in the questions. So then we were joking about how, hey, maybe they're just adult coloring books full of pictures of Nelson Mandela. (laughs) And I thought, how could three of those be the top 10 sellers of Amazon? (laughs) So the question specifically about, well, we looked into the pronunciation and uh, Paul, what, how do you pronounce it properly? Mandala. Mand- but I always thought it was man- Mandala, but it's Mandala. So what are these? What, it's not what, even what's that, a- Andy. It's Mandala. What's a Mandala? <clears throat> uh, in in uh, Buddhism, particularly, I, I've seen this in Tantra Buddhism, mm-hmm. you see the, um, the, the these drawings. Now, they, they're done in a number of different ways. I've seen them done with chalk, um, like the powder. Um, I've I, seen them done as, as colorings. So these are intricate patterns that are drawn and then are often destroyed afterwards. And now their, their meaning, uh, you know, it seems to be pretty symbolic and kind of has a range of meanings. Paul, you were looking that up. No, we were, well, there, yeah. So if you look it up, uh, so it, it's spelled M-A-N-D-A-L-A. And if you look it up online, it just says that it is generally something, uh, a oriental art that is um, concentric configuration of geometric shapes 
and it often contains an image of a deity or an attribute of a deity. So, so uh, when so it is a spiritual it, drawing. It's a spiritual thing that that Buddhists in general use. Yeah. So what's the difference? So here, okay, I have a question. Are all of the adult coloring books are they using mandalas as the pattern? No, from what I've seen from the the adult coloring books that I've looked at, they tend to have intricate patterns because yep. people want to color interesting patterns and things that are intricate. So it takes time. They obviously just don't want to be doing these broad brushes, I guess. Although I must confess, I've never done an adult coloring book, although I have done a children's coloring book with my kids. And truth be told, I tend to enjoy it more than they do. Uh, but yeah, that, that's what I've seen. So, so I was kind of... I, I wasn't really surprised though to see, but oh, so Paul's pulled one uh, up one on the the computer right now, and so those are the ones that I've seen more is the ones mm. with a lot of deities in them. Right. So some are just these, you know, uh, geometric uh, drawings, but I actually haven't seen very many of those. That tends to be what the coloring books are. Yeah. Most of the ones I've seen have been very religious in nature and mm-hmm. uh, of deities and like heavenly pictures and whatnot that are intricately drawn. So my guess, though, is that the reason why mandalas are so popular in a coloring book is because they have such um, intricate mm. um, opportunities for, for drawing. Right. So... Yeah, like if you go online and you just do a Google image search for a mandala, uh, you will find ones with just like flowers. Uh, one looks like an owl. Um, you get some kind of weird ones that, that you you know, maybe you don't want to deal with. But then uh, there's uh, there's also ones like you have the Buddhist section, you have the art section. And, and so, as was mentioned, you got Christian coloring books. So clearly, yeah. I, and I, I've never looked at a Christian coloring book, but I'm guessing that there's something Christian about what you're oh, coloring. Or maybe they're just void of spiritual mandalas. Maybe they're just picking the patterns that have no out, outright association with a deity. Right. Or maybe it's like a stained glass window or something like that. Actually, I have seen that where it, it's a what looks like a stained glass window and you're painting that. So, But I'm with you, Greg, back to where you were going with this yeah. whole thing. I don't see anything wrong with coloring books. I mean, coloring books, uh, even though it's an adult coloring book, which seems a little odd, but I think for some people it's a good stress reliever. And I'm totally. like, hey, if it's a good stress reliever, some people it's jogging for myself, for example, and other people it's a coloring book. Go at it. Right. The question, yeah. I guess, though, and this is what the the, mm-hmm. the listener the listeners asking, what about a mandala? Should you be should you be coloring one of those? Which raises an important question that we deal with in a you know in multiple multiple facets of life is when other religions are creeping in to what it is that you're partaking in. At what level should you be participating? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the the challenge is for us to not just view it as everything's totally benign, everything's totally um, void of meaning. And I I just, I'm leaning back on my assumption that a lot of us function like naturalists, even those of us who are Christians, like we just don't pay attention to the spiritual realm. We don't actually think that there are evil spirits who are active and involved in other world religions. And so because of that, we just go forward in some of these things and say, Hey, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, which I think is unwise because I think that's that, a great point. That that demons are real and they mm-hmm. they try to uh, oppose and they try to, uh, um, well, the the language of First Peter talks about the the devil trying to devour people. So they're on a on a mission to be aggressive and try to take people down. And I think we're just we're just straight up foolish if we think we can engage in all these different religious practices and come out when- totally un unscathed or aren't unharmed and just view it like, eh, it's just like anything else. Wouldn't you agree, though, that we tend to be bipolar on this, uh, at least from what I've seen? Either you're, you know, basically a Christian naturalist and you never talk about Satan or demons or, you know, anything in the spiritual realm, and you avoid the topic entirely and pretend it doesn't exist, or you're hyper sensitive to it and everything is Satan. Totally, totally. Yeah, so I mean, one of the great things about like the the atonement, Good Friday coming up when we're going to celebrate what Christ did on the cross. One of the things he did was he he was victorious over the powers. He's victorious over Satan and his his 
authorities and his rulers and, and dominions and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is is the victor. So as Christians, we do have power over those things because of who Christ is and his power. So we don't have to be fearful of it. And yet, I don't think we need, we, we shouldn't just be totally uh, ignorant of the fact that there are spiritual practices and there are things that people do to try to, you know, empty their minds and pursue other worldviews. So I guess my, my differentiation here would be, uh, if you're going to be, if you're just coloring the mandalas because you're, you like the adult coloring thing, then choose a better coloring book. So here's the, that's the question, right? To color or not to color? Yeah. Greg, what would you, what would you say, say? Don't color. There's other things you can color, which are going to be as intricate. So you're saying, so even the ones that are just the geometric shapes, we shouldn't color those? Or are you saying? See, I'm, what I would say is that if you're, if you're, if you're knowingly seeking those patterns, then I would say why. That have religious significance. Yeah. If it's in a book and it looks like a bunch of patterns and you don't actually know that it's a mandala, I don't think we have to be fearful that by coloring it, you're, you've now exposed you and your family to that specific demon. I think intention right. is an important right. point here. Uh, what what we're talking about here is if you are intentionally seeking those things right. out or participating in those things. Right. Because I've, I've also met those other people that are just absolutely terrified that they're going to open a door totally. into a spiritual realm well, of their and house. Like, and that was part of the, the, the listener's question, yeah. was, was uh, that Satan was going to trick us somehow into some thing through this. And I don't think that is... I don't think that we can... Um, if we're just coloring a pattern just for the sake of coloring, like we see a pretty flower or a, a collage of flowers in one of these things and we color it, I don't think that we can be uh, unwittingly drawn into something like that. But if we are purposely going to it seeking yeah. uh, seeking our um, I don't know, if inner peace or we're seeking to be one with... Uh, creation through this or something like that yes then then you're then you're opening yourself up to possible spiritual yeah. uh, influence but <laughs> if you're just if you're just looking at this picture and it's pretty and you want to color it like i mean i remember as a kid like we were talking about stained glass window you'd you'd paint these little plastic like stained glass things and then you'd glue them up to the your window in the kitchen or your mom would even though you colored it not very good and <laughs> you know and, the, and it would let the sun shine in whatever and, and that's totally fine but but if you're going to it with the yeah. intention like a some kind of a spiritual uh search right. through it then yeah it's you're opening yourself up to it okay so a few weeks ago i talked about a book um written by john eldridge talking about <clears throat> oh, i forget the name walking with god is the name of the book um Okay, so one of the other main practices that he he talks about in this book that's I think is massively problematic is his understanding of spiritual warfare, which is so people who would be influenced by Eldridge would be more warm to the idea that if you are unknowingly engaging in something like coloring a mandala that's not overtly religious but is like a secret hidden one, that by your participation in that, you are actually now opening up your house to a specific demon who will oppress you and come after you until you repent of that specific act that welcomed that specific demon into your family's, um, into the, the family picture kind of thing, right? So, so I understand where people are coming from because they're reading people like Eldridge or they're hearing about this kind of teaching where, hey, you have to, you're basically living terrified that the, right. that the, the meat you ate at the restaurant wasn't prayed over by a, a Hindu cook in the back who sacrificed it or who, who gave it as an offering to one of his gods right. and now says, may whoever eats this also praise you. Like, you open yourself up to a whole world of fear and total uh, just mm -hmm. no idea, no ability to, to go through life with any sense of Jesus being the victor over. I'm, I'm the just going to say you're giving you're giving the enemy <clears throat> uh, more power uh, than you are to to God, right? And then, like you said, Greg, that that He is the victor, right? So I think we're saying color away, but not don't intentionally seek after these mandalas that have this spiritual connection. This the spiritual world is real. And it's active, 
and we need to be aware but not afraid of it. Totally. Yep. Good. Yeah. Um, I think the listener, too, just to kind of nuance it a bit, she's mm. she's worried that by unintentionally picking one of these up from Kohl's and, mm. and coloring it, you're allowing Satan into your mind. And her friends and family are saying that that's true. And I wonder, how does this translate to other religious yeah. practices as well that you're not intentionally Oh, I mean, we could, we could flip in. that on its head, though, yeah. and ask, okay, so what should the Christian with the atheist son do? Should should they try mm-hmm. to get Christian coloring books? And should they mm. be, you know, because they're, you're, they're wanting no, that's a good point. You know, to be influenced from the positive as though it works like that? Yeah. And this gets back to the point that we were making. Intention is is key. Mm. I mean, I mean, because again, this is going to get back not not to go back in circles again, but this is just going to lead to a life of fear. Yeah. Uh, if if you go down that that path, and and I don't th- think that we're called to live in a life of fear. We don't need to fear. Yeah, God's after our hearts, right? And he, it's not it's not these uh, little actions that are. Um, and when you say after our hearts, yeah. again, what we're talking about is intention. Yeah, exactly. So when you go buy a coloring book from Kohl's for $30, yes, and you color away without intentionally coloring a mandala, mandala, you have not done anything wrong. No, I mean, see, look, I think it would be wise for you to look at the other, the back side of the book and see what the write-up is of it, yeah. where they get the patterns from, what, what's going on here. If it just looks like a benign, a, a totally harmless, for lack of a better word, approach to just put some nice intricate designs in a book, I'd say color away without fear. If you look at the back of the book and it says, these pictures have been taken from mandalas from various world religions as a way of praising and engaging in, I'd say, put the book down and go find a new one. Yeah. So we should never, as Christians, pick up anything off the shelf without looking at what we're engaging in. We we should actually care about what we're buying. I mean, that goes for... Within reason, that goes to everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, from yeah. what we oh, watch to what goodness. we listen, everything. Yeah, yeah. And there's tons sure. of these coloring books around, so and, there's lots of options. And Christian ones are super popular, which uh, maybe this is why is because you have a lot of people who want to do the coloring, but they're freaked out that they're going to accidentally color a mandala. So these publishing companies have been like, "Cool, let's just publish some intricate designs and make a boatload of money." Boat. One boat full of money. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next question. Um, An entire boat of money. Did you hear about the boat? Yes. This is totally off tro- yes. topic in England. This $2 billion uh, yeah, yeah. Antarctic ship explorer, <laughs> yeah. they put a they put a, a, a thing out to the English people, and they were, they were like, give us name suggestions. And uh, the winning n- uh, name for this new $2 billion boat is... Is Bodie McBoatface? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And that's really what the name is. Yes. Yeah. And so, so it's like the the HMS uh, Bodie McBoatface. Yeah, yeah. Now the government isn't uh, obligated to follow this, so they apparently. sure they won't. But anyway, it, it was just uh, apparently an interesting uh, to see how our culture responds to stuff like this now. Right? They've done this okay. before with BC Ferries. They did this with the BC Ferries too. They oh, okay. had a naming contest. I can't remember what the names were, but they they just why would you do that? Here's the, thing. the public. You could, we can never trust the public yeah. with doing things well. We just what we do is we decide to make it a joke. We all get in on it. Mm-hmm. Like one of the next highest ones in that competition was the USS, not the Titanic. Right. That's Another what it was one called. was the Pingu. Yeah. <laughs> See? Like these are great names uh, or for think, boats. Or think about the movies in which <laughs> they they've had the internet, you know, community oh, yeah. help write the script. I mean. Just awful. That's how you get, uh, what was it, plane with, plane with snakes? Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a, yeah. Since when has the and internet community... And I think Sharknado. Oh, all, Sharknado, yeah. yeah. I've, I have not seen either of those. Uh, I don't plan on it. Mm-mm. When a community wrote the <laughs> script, I say no. At any rate, you, had, you said you had a question, Matt. Yeah. Uh, can God create a stone so large even he can't lift it? Somebody actually wrote that in. Andy. Yes. This they, is apologetics this is the, all over it, man. You think that's an apologetic question? I do. All right. How is it not? That's a total, like, philosophy. It's, I, I, I agree it's a philosophical question. There's, like, 
five listeners out there that are just itching to hear an answer yeah. to that and the rest <laughs> are okay. like, you know what? why do we have people to ask those questions? That's okay. The other listeners just know there's another question coming. You can Google Bodie McBoatface right now without yeah. shame. We'll, 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 we'll call you back when we're ready for you. Okay. But Andy, there's five people who need to hear this. Yeah, they need, they need an answer to this. Uh, yeah. Can God create a stone so big that he, that he can't lift it? Those kind of questions. This, you know, interestingly enough, I, I think has some interesting implications. When we're asking the the question, is God logically possible? Is is having an omnipotent, all powerful God? Is that is that actually possible? Can you be all powerful? And I, I guess the question you have to ask is all powerful, all powerful, and compared to what? So when we talk about God, to use Anselm, we would say that God is that which none greater can be conceived. So, so in that sense, I mean, that, that's what we mean by God. Um, now, to ask whether or not God could do something, though, that's logically impossible, it, this is to ask something that's a, a nonsensical question. Uh, for example, you know, could God create a square circle? You know, well, well no, we can't. You know, and I guess in that sense, if we're going to say, well, can God do everything? Well, no, he can't do something that's not logically possible. Or, or for that matter, God can't do something that's that's outside of his nature. And this is an important one for people to understand about God, particularly because this has implications beyond just can God, you know, create a stone so big he can't lift. So the answer to that is no, he can't, because this would be to do something outside of his nature. But Plato asks an interesting question in his dialogues. It's called the Euthyphro Dilemma is often how it's uh, phrased. And that is, you know, where does goodness come from? Does goodness come outside of God, and so that's how God knows what goodness is? Or does God just arbitrarily decide what the goodness is, and and then that's what he just says, okay, that's what good is. And in which case, if if goodness is outside of God, well then, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with God. And if goodness is just arbitrary and he's just deciding what it is, well, I mean, then he could change anything, and so he could just say that rape is good, for example. And so what you have in these situations is what we would call a, a dilemma. This is a, a logical dilemma. Another famous logical dilemma that Christians wrestle with all the time is why does God allow good things, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? If God's all powerful, then he should be able to stop evil, and if God's all good, then he should want to do it, but yet we live in a world full of evil. Well, how do I, how do I logically understand that? And so that then gets into this question, well, what can God do and what can't he do? So when you have this dilemma, to wrap this up, we would in Christianity we would say that we split the horns of the dilemma and demonstrate that there can be other op- options, other other answers. For example, with the Euthyphro dilemma, that God is good, and this is significant because what we're saying is that God's nature is goodness. This is what God is, and God can't change His nature. He can't change the essence of what or who He is. And so when we're asking these logical questions, I mean, one of the things that we've got to ask ourselves is, what, you know, who is God? What do we mean by, by God? And, and by that, we can start to understand, okay, what, I mean, what is God logically able to do and what is God not able to do? Did that make sense, guys? Totally. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think it was uh, Lewis or Chesterton, one of the two who said that you can't put nonsensical combinations of words together and expect them to have meaning, which means you can't have God be and not be at the same time or something of the sort, which goes along with the the listener actually has a second question on top of that, which is, can God do absolutely anything or is he bound by some logical categories, which you have answered for us? Yeah. Great. Um, So those listeners who are searching... Bodie McBoatface right now. Come, come back. back. <laughs> take take a seat. Come listen to the podcast. We have one last question, and this has to do with translations of the Bible. Mm. The question is, some Christians seem to argue that the ESV or other translations are not as reliable as the KJV, mm. but I find the KJV cumbersome to read. These authors argue that the other translations use rel- less reliable sources. Is this true, and is the ESV trustworthy. So I think we need to to paint the picture here a little bit for listeners who might not otherwise be interested or aware of what's going on here. You you have people, Christian pastors and teachers who will insist that the King James version 
of the Bible is not only a better translation, but is actually God's inerrant word. This is what this is what they're asking. This is this is the core of the viewpoint that all other translations, like the NIV and the ESV and the uh, the the NET, whatever, pick your pick your version, the Net yep. Bible, all of them are not trustworthy because the argument goes that the King James version is God's inerrant word. That or, that version of the Bible would they say is that, without error. Oh yeah. Okay, I've never yeah. heard it placed that way. I, the way I've heard it phrased is that it is the most accurate translation. Yeah, I mean, that's, yep. So if you're hardcore, you would say that it actually is God's word mm. to us. I've seen that too. At least three websites I looked at this week said it's God's word. Everything else is from the devil. Right. Well, okay, because we're going to agree that the King James Version is God's word. Right. But but this qualifier that everything else, every other translation is from the devil, um, I mean, th- this this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and I think I'm I'm glad that the listener wrote this in because I'd like to dialogue. I think we need a dialogue yep. with what 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 is a good translation and what are we talking about? Because interestingly enough, when we're talking about the inerrant word of God, we're actually talking about the autographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we are talking about the original Greek manuscripts, uh, not the King James. Right. So there's a recognition then that um, God authoritatively speaks through human authors, and those authors wrote to a particular place in a particular time for a particular reason in a particular language. And it's through that that God's the the Greek for in uh, Second Timothy Theopneustos that, that that the words God themselves breathed. are God God breathed they're they're his yeah. his very words through the intent of the author, and so any other language now that you try to to get those words from is a translation of the originals. Mm-hmm. So whenever anyone talks about inerrancy or about infallibility. They're they're putting that language on the English translations because that's what we read and use. And yet, there's always the qualifier that what they're talking about is the original languages, that that those are the ones that are inerrant without error. Well, now let's just pause there for a moment because this is where the whole conversation demonstrates how ridiculous it is, because God has relied on translation from the very beginning. Note we have Greek, like we have a Greek autograph but the, it was not greek conversation that was right. taking place right so these are already translations of aramaic conversations that were taking place right yeah so i think we we need to um we need to do our best work with with the original documents to try to make sure that it's accurate to what the authors were intending to say. Uh, different translations will take different approaches. This now gets into hermeneutics. Yeah. We're talking about the the science. Some people uh, actually, so the science of interpretation is what is the yeah. definition of hermeneutics, which is, is interesting because I said this once to somebody and they're like, well, I don't know that it's a science and, and <laughs> as though that was a bad thing. No, no, we're talking about what does it the look process, like? Yeah, yeah, the process to systematically understand, okay, in literature, which by the way, we do it with everything we read, mm-hmm. not just the Bible. How how do we understand it? How do we how do we translate it? You know, not just the language, but how do you culturally translate it? How mm-hmm. do you per, how do you personally understand it? And the goal is to make sure that when we translate the Bible into English, or to any other language for that matter, that we are seeking to faithfully communicate the message that that was being conveyed. Now, this is where things get interesting when we look at translations, is because you have two main forms of translations that you can look at. You can see a word-for-word translation, and you can see a thought-for-thought translation. So what are some word-for-word translations? Word-for-word? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I mean, when you get when you look at that spectrum, you're talking about the what dynamic equivalency spectrum. So what right? does that mean? Yeah. And so dynamic equivalency, uh, you can have ones that are highly that way, which is the thought for thought. Which so that would be more like the um, thought for thought. Really far would be like the message. Well, yeah, the message is yeah, which doesn't even actually fall on the translation scale. Right, it, it would, falls it would off, be of falling as par- off of as it as a paraphrase. But probably the one furthest uh, that way would be the NLT that yeah. I know of. Yeah, it would probably be. 
And then one of the most well known ones, right? Be thought for thought, right? Yep. And then when you get more into the middle, you get the NIV, mm-hmm. yep. uh, which kind of tries to have a balance, and the ESV tries to be more word for word, but it really ha- still has a lot of dynamic equivalency in it. Because, and then, because oh. in order to do the translation, you just have to have that. Well, that's where things get interesting. If you go a little bit past uh, the ESV, you see NASB. And then if you were to go really far to the spectrum, you would get to an interlinear Bible, which is a literal translation of, you know, word for word. Right. You have the Greek text above and the English word of what that Greek word is below. And if there's no direct English parallel, then they just leave leave a little blank and then they go the next word. Yeah. I mean, it's like that with any language. You can't, there's, there's words that just don't translate over into another language exact right yeah. like i my parents understand german and when they talk they'll there'll be words in the phrases and situations they'll come across and these phrases in german will come to their mind and they'll say it and i'll go what does that mean and they go uh it, i don't know it, it doesn't really translate into <laughs> right. english i don't know how to say it in english i was on a missions right? like, trip once to thailand well, i was on a missions trip once to thailand and we had this translator that traveled with us while we were there and i noticed at the airport uh, when we were traveling, she uh, had a magazine that she was reading, and the entire magazine was simply to help translators understanding English euphemisms. Hmm. That you know, in these different kind of word plays that that we do, that are incredibly, notoriously difficult to translate. Right. But the the thing is, is you see this in in the in the Greek as well. The Greek uses idioms as well, and you actually you got to do some some work if you're gonna understand yeah. what you know what's being communicated but I, one of the things one of my pet peeves and this is one of the reasons why I, do, I wanted to talk about this is i've met a lot of people that have this idea that the esv mm-hmm. is is the new king james it, right it's the most you know it's the best translation it's the most accurate translation and th- this really bugs me personally mm-hmm. because one of the things that it, when you begin to look at greek and when you begin to look at hebrew and the more you do study the more you understand that sometimes you'll be in a verse and the NIV nails it. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes you'll be in a verse and the ESV nails it. Sometimes it's the NASB that nails it. Often I'll find that it's the it's the NLT, the New Living Translation, that nails it. You know, or, or then there's other times where you got to just go to the interlinear because mm-hmm. it it nails it. The, this there because of the passage. I mean, think about it in English. You don't use euphemisms or idioms in every day, you know, and everything you say. So, so in those times that you do that, well, a thought for thought is going to be necessary there because if you did a word for word, you're going to totally miss the point. Mm-hmm. Do you see, do you see yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, and also with different genres as well, it's a little bit, so yes, at right. some, some points you'll, like normally we preach to the ESV here because, I mean, we think for the most part, it gets at what's going on in the original language the best from a just if you're going to take one translation and use it primarily, um, that's the decision But you'll notice made. that we're all over the board, even here at Northview. Totally. And there are passages where, you know, the preacher will come up and say, you know what, I'm reading from the NLT this week because the ESV does a brutal job here of, of unpacking what actually is going on in this text to make it clear for us. So it's, it, it, we're, we're not, it's, that's a great point. We're not the ESV only is now. Right, we we don't want to go so far. And now here's the the problem that I have with the King James version of the Bible, and the problem I've got with that version is with any version of the Bible, the Bible will have to continually be translated. This Mm. is not a one-time, one-and-done thing. Language is in constant change and flux, Mm -hmm. and so if the goal is communication, then the translations will have to continually be updated so that we are accurately translating what the the meaning the message that was being communicated so the one of the problems i have then with the new with the king james and it's the reason why they have to do the new king james is because that we don't use that language anymore it's outdated and in in fact in many ways it becomes unhelpful because it's not communicating clearly any longer Mm. so the second part of that question was um the claim that the esv uses less reliable source material is that true they're saying that the original greek texts the king james version used were more reliable than the texts that the esv used 
No, I don't think that's accurate. Um, if you look at uh, like um, Bruce Metzger, uh, who was a, um, I think he passed away in the last couple of years. Anyway, he was one of the uh, chief Bible scholars uh, in the world when it came to translations. And uh, he would, and there's a number of these uh, gentlemen and uh, and women too who, who go and they study the original manuscripts. And when the King James was done, they didn't have some of the, uh, many of the manuscripts that we have now, which are older and closer to the original than the Latin that uh, well, and the main that one they would that we have been translated was the Masoretic text was the main text that for the Hebrew, yeah, for yeah. the Hebrew that we used in translation. Uh, but you're absolutely right. We yeah. now well, have... even the Greek ones, though. I mean, now we've got we've got texts that are uh, like. Original manuscripts that have been found that are within just a mere few decades of when it was originally or even, written. Or even the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Totally, and, yeah. Uh, and one of the things that we're able to do is to compare these different documents and to see, okay, you know, what, you know as, we put, as we're looking at those, we're able to see what is the, the most accurate translation. What, what, you know, if we see, okay, it gets translated like this in one text... Uh, for example, this is going to be coming up in Psalm 22. There is one text where it says that they didn't that they pierced his hands and feet. Well, one says that uh, something to the effect of a lion clawed his hands and feet. So mm-hmm. one one text says that the vast majority of the other ones say pierced, right? So in mm, in, yeah. in in a situation like that in Psalm 22, then we're going to go to what what are, what are the majority saying? Yeah, and and sometimes it's sometimes it works with um, with the, the majority, but sometimes it actually goes to ones where because they look at the whole text. So, like if you have like the Alexandrian text for for the Greek, uh, it's considered very reliable because it is it has the least amount of um, uh, variance in it. So, so when you when when they look at these old texts and they get they translate it to English. Uh, well, so when when they did the King James, they were tra- uh, primarily working off of the Latin, right? They were li- working off of the Vulgate, uh, mm-hmm. off of what and whatever the 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 Catholic Church had at the time is what they were working off of. But I believe that was Jerome's translation. Yes, right. And so, but now we've got we've got um, um, manuscripts that are much older in Greek in Hebrew. And uh, and they tend to be so. It, so that's not to say that the King James isn't accurate. We would no. say that it is, but we would say that that doesn't mean anything else. The, ama- the amazing thing is the is the amount of um, or how it how how similar they are, even mm. though the manuscripts mm. are you know hundreds of years apart, and how similar they actually are is is a testimony. Yeah, because to, I mean, if that on that note, yeah. if if that were to be the case, I mean, that would be to say, well, how can we trust our Bible? But the reality is, is that when we look at the documents, mm. they they, um, they demonstrate that they're incredibly reliable. Yeah. Now, here's what to me is a more important factor because we, you know, whenever they do translation, I mean, they got great source material to do the translation, either the King James or now. Uh, and we would say it's even better now because we get more and more source material yeah. uh, that demonstrates that it is accurate. What, I, what, what concerns me, though, is the scholars doing the translation work, and particularly if you, do you have a team of scholars doing this mm. translation work together? Is this a, a sole individual doing it? I mean, this is one of the problems that I have with translations, of course, like uh, the New World Translation. So this is the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, translation of the Bible that, you know, clearly the theology... Or the Passion Translation. Pans- How about that one? Yeah, and then I was going to bring up the Passion Translation where you have one individual, right, who has is, is doing this translation. Yeah. And in both cases, you see that there's this um, desire to favor their theology. And I think that's where you, you need a team of scholars working yeah. together, that it's not favoring one person's theology and that you are seeking to be accurate to... Uh, communicate the message of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a confidence in the numbers of people involved in Bible translation. You look at NIV or ESV, or you, you look through the people involved in the editing process, and they're not all from one denominational background, and they're right. not all the students of the same school. They yeah. they teach at different schools. They were educated in different places. They serve in different kinds of denominations. So what you have is a real um, 
community discernment process of what's the yeah. best way to, to unpack this original phrase so that we understand its meaning and the author's intent into our our English language. You know, Whitecliffe does this as well as they do Bible translation work around the world, mm-hmm. is they always put together a team of people of in, indigenous speakers that helps with that missionary as they're seeking to do translation work. Again, yeah. the goal is tr- communication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean another thing that's probably helpful for people to hear if they're especially if they're trying to think through man how how much can we even trust the Bible if there's these kinds of controversies of King James or ESV or whatever. Um, when you when you look at the amount of source material that we have as Bible translators compared to any other ancient document out there, it's not even close right. in terms of the amount of copies we have, the date, how old they are, yep. um, all of that is just astronomically more than all kinds of books that we would trust as accurate, like Plato's Republic and like the Iliad and Odyssey, all of these kinds of books that we just un- unwaveringly consider accurate right? Yep. have embarrassing histories compared to the Bible when it comes to the, right. the amount of material. Right. When looking at the New Testament, we have something like 25,000 different manuscripts uh, that are within the first hundred years uh, from when they were been yep. originally written. And then you look at something like uh, Plato's writings, and you have uh, of ancient manuscripts that have been found are in like the, the dozens, and they were found to be within like 500 years of when he lived. So you look at that dis- discrepancy, and nobody questions what Plato says. No, well, or more nobody, than that, yeah. whether or not he existed. I don't right. know if you guys noticed, yeah. but in Maclean's, I think it just came out in Maclean's this month. Oh, probably because it's Easter. Because it's mm-hmm. Easter. Yeah. Is this again saying, you know, did Jesus really exist? Uh, which it just drives me crazy, right? I mean, because here, if you're going to question Jesus' existence, of which we have better evidence for him in antiquity than anyone else, uh, but yet nobody's questioning whether or not Plato existed. Right. You right. would look crazy to question if Plato or Aristotle were real dudes. Yep. Or Alexander the Great. We have way better evidence that Jesus existed than Alexander the Great. Yeah. Yeah. So the point is that we should be confident that what we have in our Bibles and on our Bible programs of various different translations um, that have been compiled by a team of scholars are are really trustworthy, and we can read them, and God, through His Spirit, will speak to us and reveal truth to us and totally, equip yeah. us for every good work in yeah. following Him. Yeah, and when you're reading your ESV and you come across a phrase that seems weird, because there's there's certain phrases, I mean, even in preaching the Psalms over the last mm-hmm. month, we've chosen to use the NLT in certain instances, or the NET, the, the Net Bible, in certain instances, because the ESV just, in our opinion, didn't do a good job of the translation. So when you when you comp- so if you're reading and you come across that in your ESV, go ahead and pull it pull out the NIV, mm. pull out the NLT, and and compare them and go okay, what's the difference here? And then have a good study Bible with you, see what see what uh, scholars are saying because yeah, it's what a privilege, hey? That, oh, that it's we amazing. Have so much amazing at our fingertips. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that I often tell people as well when they're reading the Bible that we want to take a bird's eye view of the Bible. You, you you read the Bible in books, chapters, paragraphs, you know, sentences, and maybe you would look at a word. I don't think people realize, I mean, Greg, Paul, how how rare is it that you actually study a single Greek word? I mean, it's it's incredibly right. rare that 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 a single word makes makes a very big difference. Well, and even that, it's the a lot of bad teaching comes from overemphasizing what one single word could mean, and yep. you you totally I call that a word a worm's eye view. Yeah, you totally neglect where that word fits in the sentence, paragraph. Right. So chapter. you do the exact opposite. You start with a word, yeah. then you go to the sentence, paragraph, you know, chapter, book. I mean, who does that? You never look to understand the meaning of something by starting with a word and working your way out. You always yeah. stop from a. You always start from a top down, not a bottom up. Right. Yeah. yeah when we uh, do the look at the book stuff classes at TLC that uh, I've taught a bit and Crystal's helped teach a bit, we've will often say when we get to a confusing phrase in a in a chapter, we'll say, "Man, what does that mean?" And then I'll say, "Okay, let's keep reading." 
because we'll probably find out or, yeah. or there's going to yeah. be a yeah. comparison or there's going to be, you know, the author says the same thing in a different way later. So no, yeah, it's good. It's a good word. Yeah. Read it from bird's eye. Great. Uh, well, thank you for listening. This has been the extra podcast episode 248. Uh, this is the last episode before Easter this weekend. That's right. Mm. So enjoy time with your families. Yeah. And next week, we have, after Easter, uh, we have Christianity Explored starting here. So if you have some unbelieving friends and family, coworkers that you want to share the gospel with. Or if you just need to know more about Christianity. Uh, yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, come on out Wednesday nights starting at 7 o'clock, uh, starting on March 30th. And uh, we're going to have snacks. There's no cost. It's free. We get a DVD study, a book in- included. Uh, come on out. We'd love to have you. So one last question. Turkey or ham? Easter dinner. As long uh, as it's meat, I put, I'll eat it. I think it's ham, right? I do ham. Preferably Does anybody together. do the pig turducken? I've done that once. Really? It wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is turkey a thing for Easter? Yeah, well, we, some people. We used to do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Turkey, turkey is the most overrated of all the fowl. This is going to be our next Would you say it's the foulest question. fowl? <laughs> is it the foulest fowl? Turkey's awful. There's some good turkey. I've had I a think, few good pieces of turkey I think you're going to find, life. if we do a survey, yeah, Greg, it's going to be like the poll? mustard survey, and Greg's going to be in the vast minority. Look, I'm not saying everyone hates turkey. I'm saying I think turkey is overrated as a fancy Yeah, and you'll food. be in the minority. No. Yes, if you had a totally. choice between roast beef and turkey. Well, if it's turkey dinner, though. Turkey. Turkey dinner with gravy, stuffing, like the whole deal. I'm going turkey. You know how you fix it? You just throw some mustard on that bad boy. Yeah, seriously. Let's do it. Um, poll question. Is turkey overrated? Sunday night, you'll <laughs> eat your turkey. Email extra at northview.org with your questions and your poll responses. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 248. This is your not-so-silent producer, Matt. Poochie. Gucci.